When you sit down to write or type, if you're like me, not much writing going on, type a letter to somebody, how do you introduce yourself? How important is it to you that you select like the perfect words for the introduction to that letter or to who you are, the person writing the letter? Sometimes I'll sit down, I'll have a, I'll have a whole message figured out to write, yet when it comes time to introduce myself, I draw a blank. Or when it comes time to introduce the content that I'm going to say, I'm not really sure what to say. I get so focused on the middle of the, of the letter, like my main points that I want to drive home, that I totally blank on how I'm supposed to introduce any material. So how do you open a letter? Personally, you, think about that. Do you say simply, hey, I got something to say, and then you start your letter? Or, please read this letter, it's important. Or, dear so-and-so. Well, maybe you've already guessed it, but today we're, we're focusing on, t- on the introduction to the letter to the Ephesians. And so Paul does introduce this letter. And I would argue that the majority of the time that we read like a New Testament letter or anything, maybe it's, uh, how about I'll take the blame? The majority of the time I read the letter, not you, I, I somehow get through the introduction really quick because I just want to get to what Paul's got to say. I already know who you are. I already know you wrote the letter. It already tells me it's going to the Ephesians. What more do I need to know? Is this just like a nice thing that he does? What is the deal with the introduction? But if we go too fast, if we don't look at the introduction given by Paul, then I would say, I would argue, with any letter in the Bible, we miss some very deep truths that affect us today. It's not simply an introduction. That's not what it is. There's some deep meaning in these two verses. So Paul, the author, he opens with two very deep, very descriptive verses to introduce what is considered his uh, most beautiful writing. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Uh, The letter sent to the Ephesians by the Apostle Paul was said to be one of the best things that he wrote. He authored 13 letters in your New Testament. And people who study this letter would say, "This this is the best written. This is the best communication given to mankind, letter of Ephesians. And Paul begins the letter by telling exactly who he is. If you were here uh, last week, we talked about Paul a little bit and and his journey in coming to Christ, where he he set out to persecute the church. He was a Jew, and he did not want this new way to get off the ground and get going. So Jesus appeared to him, knocked him down, raised him up, and sent him on a mission for the gospel. So Paul tells us exactly who he is. He's not afraid of, of what people would think about him, about his past. He's not afraid of that, that the Ephesian Christians would look down upon him because of, his, because of his evil deeds. He's not afraid of the shame or the guilt or the condemnation he may receive when other people receive this letter, thinking of who he was in the past. He opens by communicating his authority. That's what's important to Paul. Paul knows what happened on the road to Damascus when Jesus appeared to him. Paul knows that Jesus told him to go, and so Paul writes within the authority of Jesus Christ. He writes with confidence as an apostle, the verse says. He is an apostle. He has been saved from his sin. His soul has been cleansed. Right? If you're a Christian, your soul has been cleansed of all wrongdoing. We sometimes can't even understand how deep that is. We self-condemn ourselves self-condemn ourselves all the time. That's what we do. We have been cleansed from all wrongdoing. Paul, he's an apostle. He was sent by the will of God. He's he's not an apostle because he chose to be one. He's not an apostle because he earned the right to be one, but because almighty God sent him into the world. 
I see the slides are up now. A man who was commissioned by Jesus Christ to go into the night, go into the darkness of this world and tell all who would listen, Jesus Christ came to save sinners, of which I am the worst. Paul's own words. He tells people, Jesus Christ came to save sinners, and then he puts himself as the chief. I'm the worst. How in the world does an apostle of Jesus Christ tell himself he is the worst sinner? Ah, because he has experienced the grace of God. He knows it deep within his soul. Paul communicates his authority in this letter. Everything that we're about to read is from God through Paul. Paul is writing the authoritative words of God. Therefore, every Christian, you, me, every church, anywhere around the globe, sits under the authority of this writing. We sit under the authority of the letter to the Ephesians. This is authoritative in our lives. It has more power than you. It's hard for us to understand sometimes. God used Paul to communicate his word, to communicate his truth. So we can sit here and just think, it's a good reminder for us. There's a lot of decisions we make and a lot of authority we take personally, right? We have the authority to make certain decisions in our lives. We have the authority to, make, uh, to think certain things in our life, whether it's your job or your family. God has given you certain authority. But let me tell you, the word of God is our authority. We will not sit in judgment against it. We do not stand as editors beside of it. And we sit in authority under it, under the word of God. So he begins, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul's an apostle, one of the only 13 men, the apostles, who were given the unique position of being founders of the church. When you hear the word apostle, that's what I want you to think. Those were the 13 men who were given the unique position and power by Christ Jesus and the Holy Spirit to be the founders of the church, of a church that maybe looked like much like ours today, a community of people gathered, saved, redeemed people worshiping God. And Paul is sent to Ephesus to establish a church. That's what he was called to do. He is sent because God has people in the city of Ephesus whom God desires to save. That's why he goes there. Listen, that's why God goes anywhere is because he has people he desires to save. Now, let me add this. There are no living apostles today. Let no one fool you. This does not exist. Now, there are people around the globe and in our North American continent, who would say there are apostles of God, they are in error. They are not right. And you can tell them they're not right. That is your righteous judgment upon them. It's okay. Now, don't be mean. Just be nice about it. But there are no apostles living today. There are no apostles here in Portage or Kalamazoo. I am not an apostle. Other pastors are not apostles. But I can tell you, just because there are no living apostles today, that does not mean God doesn't have people he wants to save here. God has people in this county. Amen? He has people that he has elected, and they need to hear the gospel so they can respond and receive salvation. We're here because Jesus, Jesus is building his church. We are sent to do the work that we do here every Sunday and throughout the week and on Sunday evenings and in the middle of the week because God has people he desires to save. That is the work of the church. That's what we're doing. Paul continues, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we can breeze past the introduction to figure out what, the, what one of the longest sentences in the Bible says, 
That's coming up. Verses 3 through 14 is written as one sentence. I know, it's weird. We can breeze past this introduction and just get into it. We would miss so much if we did not stop and think about what Paul is saying and how he is saying it. So much truth packed into an introduction. So here's the big idea. The big idea is this. The Christian is a saint who remains faithful in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is telling us. That's what Paul is telling the church in Ephesus. Paul knows who he is. He knows he was a man and, uh, who once was far away from God, and he knows that God has saved him. He knows that God has saved him from his sin. He knows that God has saved him for a purpose. So are, are you aware of your purpose? Do you know with full confidence like Paul does in this letter, with no shame that he's going to say, yes, I'm one of the 13 people who have these gifts. No one else has them. God has saved me. God has sent me. This is my mission. Friends, as a church, you have a mission. You're sent. You're not saved to sit. You're saved to go. You're sent. He says, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First thing we need to understand is that Paul addresses those Christians who live in Ephesus as saints. Saints, let us not forget ever, let us not forget that the Christian is first a saint. Some of you have a Catholic background, not like that saint. Not like that saint. You see, there is some confusion that way. Every Christian who believes in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is a saint. You've earned it. You just get that, okay? That's what you get from upon your salvation. You are a saint. You are set apart. You are made holy. You are regarded as blameless through the perfect righteousness of Jesus. And that that righteousness of Jesus has been given to you, has been credited to your account. And just as Paul is an apostle by the will of God, so you are a saint by the will of God. You can address each other as saints. You can say, my name is Saint Sarah. I don't care what you say. You can write it on your letters. Do whatever you want. You're a saint. It's not self-generated. It is a work of God. This is actually simple yet powerful to those who wake up every day feeling like they can't forget their past, the past that God has saved them from. Amen? The devil keeps reminding us who we were five years ago or a year ago or six years ago. Did you know that God thinks you're a saint? He's made you into a saint. You've been made holy. This means God has separated you from your sin. He has separated you from your sin. This means uh, God has removed the grip of sin on your life. The temptation that you once could not battle against and say, nope, I'm not going to do it, that has been removed. You have the power to say no to temptation. You have the power to not indulge in the sins that you once indulged in. This means that sin does not define you. This means the things that you hated about yourself in the past no longer define you. This means that the, sins that, the sin that once defined you, um, the sin that, that held you in bondage like a slave, that sin that had a destructive grip on your life has been thrown into the sea. You've been removed from your shackles. You're a saint. You are a saint. God has separated you from your sin as far as the east is from the west. What a great reminder. Church, we're no longer sinners, but we're saints. Every person here today who is a believer is a saint. And every person here who is a saint is also a believer. 
A saint, Paul tells us, is, is someone who is faithful to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful. Faithful. Paul tells us a saint is someone who is faithful. The word faithful there is active. So maybe it would be better to talk about this word faithful in terms of like um, the Ephesian Christians had faith in or who they were faithful to. Okay, so the word is faithful, continually believing, being faithful in the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so this same word is also found in another part of your Bible. I'm going to read you a story. I'll try to summarize it. But I want us to understand what the word faithful means. So when Paul says to the saints, to the people who have been freed from their sin, that's you, that's I, that's why we can receive this letter. This is the word of God to us who are in Ephesus. He didn't write to Citygate. This is written to not us. We can use it. It is for us, but it's not written to us who are faithful in Christ Jesus, who believe. This word is found in the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, fourth book of your New Testament. And this is after Jesus had been dead, after he'd been raised from the dead, and he starts walking around introducing himself to the people he once knew, and half of them are freaked out. Now they're happy, but they're like, wow, you really did come back from the dead. There's one man named Thomas. Thomas is a little bit more skeptical, Right? He's the one that always wants the proof in life, those annoying people that always let you do what you want. you got to prove it to them. So a time when Jesus interacted with one of his disciples was after he was raised from the dead, and this word faithful is going to be used in this story. Here's what it says, John 20, 19 through 29. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. So the, the Christians are now hiding. They're their, their king, their Messiah had been killed, and now the Jews are going to come for them too. That's what they fear. So they're hiding in homes. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. He showed them the wounds that he had. He said, It's not a ghost. It's not me. Our God and our Savior was bodily resurrected. It was not a ghost. It was not a spirit. It was the body of Jesus Christ. We believe in the resurrection of the body. When he had said this, he showed them the hands on his sides, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you hold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Enter Thomas. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin. Thomas had a twin was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. Hey, Thomas, we've seen Jesus. He came back. But he said to them, no, unless I see the hands and the marks and the nail marks and place my finger into those marks of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe that Jesus came back. You guys are on something. But unless Jesus comes to me and I can put my finger, that's wicked, if I can put my finger in those wounds, I'm not going to believe anything you tell me. Eight days later, his disciples were inside once again, and Thomas was with them. Thomas had to live with us for eight days. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. He said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand and put it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, you have believed because you have seen me. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. 
A saint is someone who's faithful. A saint is someone who is, is actively, actively exercising belief in who Jesus is. Look at what Jesus tells Thomas when he's doubting the resurrection. Don't disbelieve, but believe. That but believe word is to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful and are believing and are actively believing in me. Jesus says, Thomas, believe me with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength that I am standing in front of you. Just a little while ago, I was dead. Now I am alive. Believe unto me. Believe in me. Have faith in me. The church is made up of people who are saints, set apart, and are believers. Believing faithfully that Jesus is who he said he was and that he is going to reign and rule over all creation. That's who we are. Actively believing every minute, every day, that he is who he said he was, that he is the resurrected son of God. This is where people Kind of give the church like a little bit of, yeah, we like your religion. It's good for mankind. You guys do a lot of great things. You're nice people, half of you. And um, you open your doors to me and it's great. But you believe that a man came back from the dead? I mean, I can't get over the virgin birth yet. Now you guys are already on to the resurrection. Dead people stay dead. They don't come back. Friends, church, can I tell you that the world thinks that we have checked our minds at the door, just so you're aware. They think that you have written off reason and logic for an illusion. The world will look at you puzzled, half irritated, half frustrated if you stand firm in your belief of the man who claimed to be God, the same man who was dead on Friday and alive on Sunday. But friends, the saints in the church are those who are believers in that. It's tough. Now, it's not tough for us, and we're looking at them going, just believe. They're half irritated. They're half frustrated. Why? Because they're not believers. The church is made up of people who are made holy, set apart, and faithful in their belief. And this is the moment when some of you are saying to yourself, I do believe, John. I do. I, every day I have to wake up and I believe that Jesus is who he said he was. And I believe that he saved me from my sin. But man, I wish I could see him. Just a little, just for a second. Because if then I could see him, then I'd really believe. I'd be like super faithful, okay? It's not a thing. I'd be super faithful. I just need a little glimpse. I wish my friends could see him. I've been telling my certain friend about Jesus for 15 years. And man, if they could just see him. Why doesn't Jesus just come back so people can see him? That, that'd be great. Our work would be a lot easier. Our church would be filled all the time with the people worshiping God because they saw Jesus. Ah, but wait. Jesus said, blessed are those who have not seen, yet believe. That's us. Church, we are more blessed because we have not seen, yet believe. Don't ever forget that. Blessed are we because we believe in the resurrected Savior, yet have not seen him with our eyes. This is us actively exercising our belief, actively exercising our faith. Faith is what characterizes the Christian. Faith is what characterizes a true church. Active faith, living as a believer, making decisions as a believer. 
walking as a believer, talking as a believer, treating your loved ones as a believer, working in your jobs as a believer, being a citizen of this community as a believer. All of that takes active faith in our belief. It's clear throughout the Bible you cannot be a Christian unless you believe something. you got to believe something to believe a Christian. You're not a Christian from birth. You're not a Christian because you're wise or you're smart. You're a Christian because you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. But are we only to believe in the moral ideas of teachings of Jesus? Are we, are we only to believe in the moral uplifting things that he said? Because certainly there are a lot of those, and there are a lot of people that would give Jesus credit for those things that he has said. The Sermon on the Mount. Everybody wants to be treated really in a nice way. Everybody wants their neighbor to think of them like, um, you're a Christian, aren't you supposed to treat me the way you want to be treated? I really like that one. That's a good one for me. But is that all, is that all we are to believe? No. According to Paul's introduction, a Christian is someone who has faith. Someone who believes in specific things. And according to Jesus, our belief must be in him, in him, and about him. Okay, in him and about him. So specifically, what are Christians to believe? If you're here, a Christian here today, you're thinking, I don't know, I guess if I had to articulate it, what would I tell people I believe? I'm glad you're here. I'm about to tell you. We believe in the Jesus of Nazareth as the only son of God. We believe in that God becoming a man. We have faith that the word of God became flesh and lived among us. We believe in the virgin birth, the songs we sing, the creed that we said. We believe in the miracles he performed. We believe he was crucified on a cross at Calvary, which satisfied the wrath of God on behalf of all sinners. Not belief that Jesus tasted death in our place, so we never will. That's what we believe. Believe that we are saved by the blood that he shed. We believe, we believe that he died, but was raised from the grave. And so much more. But see, you can't be a Christian unless you believe those things. Unless you actively think on those things and believe them. Since Jesus was raised and since the moment the church took off and spread all over the world, people have sprouted up and said, we believe this about Jesus, but we don't believe that. We believe he was fully God, but that means he wasn't really man. We believe that he was a really a man. He wasn't really a God. No. We believe everything the Bible says about Jesus. We have faith in that belief. It drives all that we are and everything that we do. It is encouraging to remember that we are saints. It is important to us that we remember that we are to remain faithful, even when the going gets tough and the world looks at you and says, gosh, I wish you Christians would just like be quiet or leave because you're annoying. Go worship your angel in the sky somewhere else. Children don't come from virgins, and dead people don't get raised. Get over yourselves. Church, the authoritative word of God says otherwise. We believe. We believe and we have faith, even when the going gets tough. Can't really talk about being a faithful Christian without thinking about those Christians who were in Ephesus, can't we? Sarah read to us a great story. If you Go through Acts 18 and 19. You will read Paul's journeys through the city of Ephesus. We can't really talk about being a faithful Christian today unless we understand what it was like to be a faithful Christian in Ephesus, understanding the city in which they live. 
the time in which they live. The saints in Ephesus know a thing or two about how it got tough to live as a Christian. Ephesus, the great city, was home to Artemis, the god of the, of the Ephesians, the god of Ephesus. They had thought at one time this miraculous stone meteor rock fell from the sky, and that is what they fashioned their idol out of. That was their god. So Artemis translates to Diana. So if you think of the temple of Diana, temple of Artemis, it's the same person. The Greek name is Diana. So Ephesus was home to the great idol of Diana. Check this out. The temple of Diana had 127 columns, all 60 feet high, three and a half feet in diameter. The breadth and the width of the temple was about the size of an American football field. It was built of marble, cypress wood. It was the largest building known in antiquity, considered one of the seven wonders of the world at the time when it was around. For centuries, much of the life in Ephesus revolved around this temple of Diana. Ephesus was also the third largest city in the Roman province. And all that Rome conquered, Ephesus was one of the third largest cities with a massive temple to a stone that fell out of the sky. Third largest city in the Roman Empire in the temple of Diana was the centerpiece to that city. It was filled with sorcery, dark arts, magic. In fact, it was regarded as one of the most hospitable places for magicians and sorcerers and people looking to capitalize from their magic. It was one of the most hospitable places to that group of people. If you wanted to go learn the dark arts, if you wanted to make money off of it, go to Ephesus. You can practice the dark arts there. People love it. That's where you want to go. To better understand the culture of Ephesus as it relates to the church, Right? We can think about the thing that was just read to us, although you didn't have the words. I'm aware of that. That's Acts 18 and 19. So the book of Acts is authored by a man named Luke. Luke also writes a book in your New Testament. And think of the book of Acts. like It's called, in the old school terms, it's called the Acts of the Apostles. So the book of Acts just chronicles the, the New Testament church as it's being built, as the Spirit is moving and churches are being planted. So let me summarize what Sarah read earlier. Paul enters into Ephesus and for three months attempts to reason with unbelieving Jews. That's what he does. He's going to the synagogues, his people, and he's saying, look, I need to share something with you. Uh, the guy who said he was Jesus, he's, he's, he is who he says he was. He is the son of God. He has been raised from the dead. You need to have belief and faith in him. Some of them came to faith, and, and he spends another two years traveling in surrounding territories, ten, telling everyone he can about Jesus. This is Paul. They actually think he spent about three total years in Ephesus around that area. He dedicated three years of his life to that place, to a point where the Bible says all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. All the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord because of what the Holy Spirit was doing through the Apostle Paul and the Christians. Such an encouragement. Such an encouragement to us, isn't it? This is a blueprint. This is, these are marching orders. This is what we're to emulate. Share the good news with people until all of Kalamazoo County have heard the gospel. We're going to tell everybody we can until everyone has at least heard who Jesus truly is. Whether they respond or not, we can't have control over that. We can plant the seeds. God will make it grow. But look at what Paul did. Spent three years of his life traveling with his friends, telling people about Jesus, until the Bible says all who were in Asia heard the good news. That's a lot of preaching. That's a lot of teaching. That's a lot of coffee meetings. 
That's a lot of kosher meals. That's a lot of something to get people around a table to tell them about Jesus. Is that something we desire? Is that something you desire? Do you wake up thinking, I won't be the creepy Christian who makes Jesus into everything, but I will, I will tell someone about my faith. I will tell someone about the man who has changed my life. I will tell someone who is going to, uh, someone about the man who is going to come back and reign as king over all of creation. I will share my faith in some small way or some big way. Church, is that our goal? I would say it should be. We're in year like two and a half at this church, and let me tell you, there's a lot of people here who love to share their faith, and I am thankful for it. But let us always be reminded we're not called to sit. We're called to be sent. Amen? That's what we're called to do. It's hard. It's awkward. People don't want to hear it. You believe in a dead guy who's once alive. I get it. I get it. But actively believe and have faith. Have faith. Back to Ephesus. Through the faithful believers, God continued to do miracles within the city. This is the end of Acts chapter 18. Through faithful believers, God continues to do many miracles, healing diseases, freeing people from evil spirits to the point where those who once practiced magic and dark arts, verse 18 says, were now believers. We're now faithful. They were saints. Believers confessing, divulging their practices, and a number of those who practiced the magic arts brought their books together, burned them in the sight of everyone who would see, burned them in sight of all, and they counted the value of them to the found out. It came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. You think that the conversation you're scared to have is going to fall on deaf ears, so you're just not going to have it? You're wrong. You're wrong. What if Paul said, I'm supposed to be here, but they sure do love their magic. (laughs) Don't think it's going to work. I'll hang out for a while, meet some people that really like me, and then we'll just wait till God calls us to the next city. What if he would have said that? Every little conversation matters. Every prayer that you lift up about the friend you want to talk to or the spouse or the child or the neighbor matters. Remember, prayers outlive us, church. They outlive us our children, and generation after generation. God has heard them. God knows them. What happens when people live full of faith and belief? God saves people. What happens when faith is an action people can see and hear? God saves people. Now, Acts chapter 19, we also heard that story read from Sarah, records how so many people were coming to faith in Jesus. It was not a little bit of people. It was a lot of people because the Bible records the blacksmiths who made the little shrines for people to worship started to go, wait a minute, my, I'm not making as much money as I used to. What is going on? I mean, the people are supposed to come. They're supposed to buy their silver idols. They're supposed to go to the temple and do this religious thing. I'm making these things and my shelves are full. I got too much stock. What happened? The Bible records the blacksmiths who made the shrines and idols from Diana started to riot because the amount of people were walking away from gods made by human hands. Praise God, right? The amount of people were walking away from false, empty, pointless, depressing religion. So many of them were walking away from it. It had enough to impact the economics of the city. So many people were living in freedom. It affected the economics of the city. Freedom from worshiping a shrine made of silver. 
free from worshiping a shrine made by human hands, which, by the way, is void of any power. Anything created by human hands is void of any power. It's, it's, it's void of any power to deliver them for what they're currently going through in their life. It's void of any power to raise them from the dead, to remove the guilt and the shame they carry on their shoulders every single second of the day. Those shrines were void of any power to cleanse them from their unrighteousness. So through faithful saints, actively believing, believers, God saved a huge amount of the city. When the church is faithful, people experience People experience freedom from their idols. People experience freedom from their idols. Also, by the way, when these things happen in our day today, when the idols of our current society start to get minimized, the world will get angry. Can I tell you, when the world gets angry, the church is on the move. That's our evidence. Ephesus rioted because their silver shrines were not being worshipped, and they rioted. Why? Because the word of the Lord was going forward, and people were being saved. If Citygate has within it faithful saints, if we have within our church faithful saints, which I believe we do, I'm not asking you to call that in question, people from our community will walk away from the fake gods they have been worshipping and begin to worship the one true living God. If Citygate has within it faithful saints, people will walk away from greed, Because the God of money is no longer worshipped in their home. And they don't find their purpose or their security or their credit of their life to the shiny stuff that they have. If Citygate has within it faithful saints, people will walk away from pleasure, seeking another relationship, thinking that is what's going to fulfill them. Putting down the substances because they know that is actually not going to fulfill them. They will set aside their egos. They will walk away from a lifestyle of sinful destruction and embrace goodness and kindness of Jesus. All of us, church, we're faithful saints because God saved us from idol worship. You know that. He saved us from putting all of our hope and our joy and our faith in something made by human hands, and he opened our hearts and our minds so we can worship the God who is uncreated. Amen? That's what he did for you. He saved you from worshiping a false God, which leads to destruction. If Citygate has within it faithful saints, believers, people will be saved in this place. Amen? People will find freedom. The Christian is a saint who remains faithful in Christ Jesus. Finally, the Christian is a saint who believes in Jesus. A Christian is someone who is in Christ. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ, Don't ever remove any words from this Bible because even the word in is foundational in this sentence. Very, very important. In. A word we use a bunch of times in a day, but here it means everything to us. The Christian is a saint who believes in Jesus. A Christian is someone who is in Christ. Can I describe for you the description of a Christian? The true definition of a scripture, a truth which cannot be reduced any further. Christians are saints and they are faithful and they are in Christ. You are hidden in Christ. You're not of the world. You're not in the world. You're in Christ. We were once Adam, right? We were once in Adam, Adam and Eve, the first people to live. 
but we're now in Christ. The Bible says we were once in Adam, meaning uh, we bear Adam's image. We, we are flesh and bones. We're man and woman. Adam is the first image bearer of God, the first representative of all mankind. That's what the Bible says. This is Romans 5. You can read it for yourselves. Write that down. Read Romans 5. We were once in Adam because he represents who we are. We're flesh. We're creation. We identified with Adam. We're in Adam. We were all made of flesh. Everyone born into the world is a representative of Adam. But here's what this also means. We're also all sinners. We get his image. We get the sin. The Bible says sin came into the world through one man and death through that sin. So death spread to all men because all have sinned. That's depressing. Good job, Adam. You know? Don't think you could have done better. You would have done worse. Amen? But to those who believe and have faith in Jesus Christ, they are no longer in Adam. What does it say? But you're now in Christ. Because the Bible also says, if through one man's sin, death reign and conquers this world, the Bible says much more, much more, much more will those who receive the grace and the gift of righteousness reign in the life through one man, Jesus Christ. We are in Christ. It's overwhelming. You are a part of the body of Christ. You are one with Christ. All the blessings you enjoy as a Christian comes to you because you are in Christ. I could take another 35-minute sermon, let's be real, 40-minute sermon to explain this, which I'm actually going to do next week. I'm sorry, we're still going to talk about in Christ. That's the phrase we're talking about next week. And let me tell you, once you realize you are in Christ and what you're not a part of in this world, you will think and live differently. The Bible is explicit about in Christ. It is transformative for your life. Now, don't come back next week because you're like, well, he's still in verse 2. I ain't coming back. Let me tell you, the things the Bible tells us about us being in Christ will utterly change your life, thoroughly change your life. So I'll bring us to a close. I'll close with this. What Paul is describing to the saints in Ephesus and our faithful in Christ is a community of people living within the world, right? Still a part of the world, but not stained by the world. We're no longer sinners. We're no longer dirty. We have been cleansed. We are the righteousness of Christ. He's describing the people of God living by the power of God, not people stained by the world. And so imagine Paul first arrives in Ephesus, right? He arrives in Ephesus. God sends him there because God's got people there. Amen? We are here because God has people here. That's why we're doing what we're doing. He looks out into the great city, the great temple, the size of a football field, all these columns, all these silver, silver shrines. And although it's wealthy, thriving, filled with people, you know what Paul sees? He sees only a dark desert, dry, dust, darkness. Nothing but idol worship, dark magic, sorcery, dust, and death. That's what Paul sees. No matter how shiny the city is or how much the city is flourishing, that's what Paul sees. People coming and going, offering their praises to a man-made idol, hoping to make sense of life. But then the good news of Jesus Christ begins to spread. People begin to believe. They begin to have faith. They begin to live faithfully. The good news of Jesus Christ spreads and people begin to believe. And now what is growing in the middle of the city, positioned just outside the temple of Diana, right where everyone's going to walk into that temple, is a small, 
yet lush, green, vibrant oasis, a paradise. A paradise in the middle of the darkness. In the middle of the death and the darkness of this great city is an oasis teeming with life, vibrant life, real life, joy, hope, happiness in Christ. In the middle of a desert sits a place where people find God, and that is the Ephesian church. That's who Paul's writing to. Those are the saints in Ephesus. Those are the faithful Paul is writing to. In the middle of it all, they are going to be there, they're going to be faithful, and they are going to be believers in Christ. Now, it may be small. The Ephesian church may have been thought of as insignificant, but there it is, a place where dead people come alive because they believe in the Son of God who came to take the sins of the world, who came to pay for the sins of the world and then bring us back to God. So I'm done for today. If you are here today, and for any number of reasons, maybe you are not a believer, and you say, I, I thought I did once believe in Jesus Christ. I don't believe in all that stuff about Jesus Christ. I didn't know it was that extensive. We're called to live faithfully, active belief in all of who Jesus is. So I would invite you today. We're going to transition to communion now. We're going to come, and we're going to Walk towards the table, the Lord's Supper. We're going to observe his body and his blood. We're going to remember that we are saints because of what he accomplished, not because of what we accomplished. Amen? We're going to walk towards this table with him in mind, not with us in mind. We're going to rejoice in the fact that we were once dead, lost, on the path to destruction, yet his grace and mercy made us alive together in Christ. To the city gate, Saints who are faithful. It's got to get a ring to it, doesn't it? That should have been our volleyball team name, the City Gate Saints. To the City Gate Saints who are faithful in Jesus Christ, would you come and observe communion today? Let me pray and then come.